Hyperion to a satyr. Welcome to the eighth episode of Hyperion to a Seder, the Fire and Water Podcast Network's Hamlet podcast. I'm your host, Siskoid, your guide on a scene-by-scene deep-dive look at Shakespeare's masterwork through the lens of not only the text, but many film, television, comics, and music adaptations. Today we're talking about Act 1, Scene 5, Part 2, in which a mad-seeming Hamlet makes his friends swear an oath, which will bring us to our first act break. The act will end with a swearing ritual, forcing Hamlet's friends not to reveal what they know of the ghost's appearance, even as the prince takes on the appearance, whether feigned or not, of a madman. For the play's directors, one of the challenges is the representation of the ghost moving and speaking from under the stage, which is meant to represent hell. In a stage presentation, the audience might be aware of the fact that the sound comes from the floor, but watching film versions on a television anyway, doesn't quite allow for it. Special effects may come in handy, but many choose to simply use voiceover and let Hamlet's words and actions infer that it is coming from the ground. Directors and actors will also have to decide what to make of Hamlet's wild and whirling words. Is he starting to go mad or crafting an improvised performance before his friend's eyes and ours? One thing is certain, regardless of whether or not Hamlet is mad after seeing the ghost, the spirit must exist. We were reminded once again that Hamlet is not uh, the only one who sees and hears it. Horatio and Marcellus catch up to Hamlet, uh, who is in a manic state, and he confirms the ghost's existence. He also uses the epithet wonderful when Horatio asks what news. I'd never really thought about Hamlet's answer, perhaps because it was always thrown glibly and quickly as part of the prince's mad speeches, but you can see it as Hamlet waking up from a dream and answering honestly. We know the news is pretty far from wonderful. Of course, he probably means filled with wonder, which would be warranted from you know, a brush with the afterlife. We might wonder ourselves if Hamlet actually sees the prospect of getting to kill his uncle as something positive, or if this is emotional inversion in an early clue to his madness. In the early part of the sequence, Hamlet does indeed seem mad, but then even his friends will hear the ghost's voice. Perhaps we should look at the concept of the royal body as an explanation. Uh, the king is dead and Denmark grows cold. The new king has broken rightful succession, which relates to time being out of joint and the temporal strangeness of the play. But if Hamlet is the rightful bypassed king, should he not also relate to the state? The solution to the problem of the ghost and Hamlet's madness, is there a ghost or is he mad, may be that Hamlet's grief and madness are spreading a new reality in the land. He misses his father so strongly that his grief manifests as an apparition that others can see. That's one way to have our cake and eat it too. There's been a villain dwelling in old Denmark, but he's an arrant knave. I've always felt that there was an ambiguity to these lines. Is the knavish villain Claudius, or is it Hamlet himself? The ghost has, in a way, created a new villain in Denmark. Part of why Hamlet delays the murder of his uncle is that, and we've often spoken of his Puritanism, murder is a sin. Though he was quick to swear revenge, the whole of the play has Hamlet working out how he can commit such an act and abase himself to the level of Claudius, 
smiling and being a villain, in spite of his conscience. Even if we do not subscribe to Hamlet actually being mad, there is a dramatic insanity at work where a character cannot reconcile who he is and what he must do. This is dramatized further in the swearing ritual that is to come. But first, Hamlet tries to make them agree to ignore this whole episode. Let's shake hands and part. Hamlet tries to protect his friends from what he is to become, but they won't allow him to leave without more explanation. It is significant that Hamlet talks about praying here. Look you, I'll go pray. But pray to what? Horatio presses him and he admits that uh, this was an honest ghost. Hamlet at least believes the tale of murder, because it fits his own feelings towards Claudius. But the strange, indecorous way he treats the ghost in the next lines indicates he does not necessarily trust the ghost's motives. Hamlet knows that by the action he has sworn to, he has damned his soul. The ghost is, at once, his father's spirit and a goblin damned. Hamlet next asks, they swear, never to speak of what happened this night, and the ghost joins in. But as soon as the ghost makes its voice known and forces Horatio and Marcellus to swear to silence, Hamlet puts its honesty in doubt, calling it boy and, ironically, true penny. Later, it is a fellow in the cellarage and an old mole. Hamlet and the staging treat the ghost as the devil, and the swearing ritual thus becomes a kind of pact with the devil. Hamlet is to lose his soul in this, and you can compare this to Horatio's invocation of angels upon the prince's death at the end. What we're seeing is a kind of satanic ritual that pledges Hamlet's life to the underworld. They do swear, and Hamlet's famous line here is that there is more in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Now, some directors prefer in our philosophy. I've come across both wordings, and we'll have occasion to discuss what differences this makes as we tackle the different adaptations. Horatio is here called a stranger, which goes with his ignorance of Danish custom in the previous scene. And of course, all of Denmark has now become an alien land, one in which the supernatural seems very real, shaking the foundations of Horatio's educated philosophy, which denies superstition. But come, here is before, never, so help you mercy. How strange a rod, so how I bear myself, as I perchance hereafter shall think meet to put an antic disposition on. Does Hamlet tell them his plan to put on a crazy act, or does he warn them that he's going mad? He makes them swear they won't even ambiguously suggest that they know anything either way. And it sometimes seems like the play has also sworn this and will not give a definitive answer. Horatio and Marcellus swear not to tell us the truth of Hamlet. And it's clear that Horatio is told a lot more than what is said in this scene eventually. And so we never really do it. If the play is Horatio's telling of it at the very end, there are still missing pieces. He hasn't been freed from his pledge entirely. In the act's final rhyming couplet, The time is out of joint, O cursed spite that ever I was born to set it right, Hamlet fully realizes he's doomed. Time is so out of joint that another line follows this couplet, which breaks Shakespeare's usual form. Nay, come, let's go together, which is a repetition from a couple of lines earlier. Now, let's look at how the movies have chosen to portray this sequence. In Branagh's Hamlet, as soon as Horatio and Marcellus come running up, Hamlet goes from quiet to completely hysterical, his voice almost comically breaking. Does this mean he's already feigning madness? Well, yes and no. Based on the performance alone, you might think so. Hamlet has just learned about a terrible betrayal from his uncle and his mother. It's turned his world upside down, and in the opening moments of the sequence, would not know if he can trust his friends anymore. Certainly, even if they're not working against him, he wonders if he can trust them with his secrets. 
the story is so extraordinary that it would be hard for almost anyone not to want to tell it. And so he tries to dismiss them by appearing a little crazy. Horatio did bring it up earlier as a possible effect of talking to the ghost and evading their questions. On the commentary track, Branna describes Hamlet's state of mind as hysteria. He's trying to process this new information and just can't talk about it right now. They can't know it's that much of a shocker, so they push him. So Hamlet's mind is rushing with swirling camera shots of trees to help his POV come across. And he's acting crazy, genuinely, but it's not meant to be taken as if he's falling into madness. Horatio is soon impatient with him. In their friendship, there's no call for such evasions. Again, he does not realize how big this revelation was. Hamlet's not trying to destroy his friendships, he's just, he just needs more time. Once he realizes that they won't let him off without an explanation, he does start giving hints that things aren't right. But he doesn't reveal anything about the murder at this point. Horatio is in the know later, so we must assume he had a conversation offstage. At this point, he's trying desperately not to include them, both to make sure they don't blow his secret and spare them the weight of it. When Horatio mentions offense... He can't hold it in anymore. He sincerely doesn't want to offend Horatio, but is also incredibly offended himself by what the ghost has told him. The cat's out of the bag. He doesn't tell all, but will. We just don't need another expository scene at this point. That's why we have the swearing, and neither Horatio nor Marcellus realize how serious it is. But we have sworn, my lord, already! Upon my sword, indeed! He's quickly sick of the swearing business, until the ghost once more intervenes with its big, bellowy, swear! The earth cracks and explodes with smoke, fire, and shaking trees. They get a little touch of hell. And if loyalty doesn't keep them silent, fear will. Hamlet calms down when the ghost finally leaves. Is there a link between the spirit's presence and Hamlet's mania? Is the swearing cathartic in some way? Is there comfort in the sharing of the secret or the knowledge that one is not mad because the visions have been shared? Or is it simply that once they've sworn, he can show his true face with no added ambiguity? Though Horatio planted the seed of feigning madness in Hamlet's mind in the previous scene, the plan to put on an antic disposition is probably born even as the prince says those very words. He has seen his friend's reactions to his temporary bout of mania, and seen he could use such behavior as a smokescreen for his revenge activities. Though he proposes to con all of Elsinore, he will have two allies who know the truth, one of which is not seen again. In the closing moments of the act, Hamlet repairs his friendships with them. Let's go together. It evokes a partnership between the three holders of the secret. Note also the inclusiveness of Hamlet's in our philosophy instead of in your philosophy here. In this adaptation, Hamlet and Horatio have a very tight bond, and in this line, choice are made closer still. They have the same kind of education, the same opinions, the same thought process. Hamlet chooses not to exclude his friends, and the most cynical of us could say he's trying to ensure loyalty. He's manipulating them. But in this version of the play, at least, Hamlet genuinely cares for them and keeps them close without ulterior motives. There are a number of strange choices made in the Olivier version, including cutting most of the ghost's part under the floorboards. But I'm getting ahead of myself. One thing about the ghost's voice, though, that I didn't mention last time and should have, except I only discovered it when writing up the credits for that episode, is that Olivier himself plays that role, the voice of the ghost. So if we want a mad Hamlet who only imagines the ghost, we can use that as evidence. Its voice is really Hamlet's. But of course, you could also say that father and son have similar voices. 
But back to those strange choices. First, you'll note that Hamlet must force three men to swear, not just two. Horatio and Marcellus are joined by Bernardo, who was, after all, present when they went to tell the prince about the ghost. Since Bernardo wasn't as trusted a confidant as the others, as inferred from the text of Scene 2 itself, it means this Hamlet is even more careful about what he tells them. Olivier makes it very clear that Hamlet was about to tell them the whole story when he caught himself and went for... But he's an errant knave. There's ne'er a villain dwelling in all Denmark... But he's an errant knave. There's a long pause of realization there. Though he's distracted and evasive, I wouldn't go so far as to say Olivia's Hamlet becomes manic. The madness is definitely underplayed, leaving the crafting of an antique disposition for later. Which makes other choices a bit bizarre. As the conversation progresses, the characters keep going down from platform to platform, a fine opportunity to signal a descent into madness, but that Hamlet doesn't quite give in to it seems a missed opportunity. The move might also help motivate the ghost's voice coming from the ground. Hamlet is initially too high up uh, to do the whole worthy mole speech. However, in this version, the ghost does not manifest itself before the incredulous men, so all of that is cut out. In this version, Horatio's This is Wonder Strange doesn't apply to the ghosts, but to Hamlet's insistence that they swear a second time. If reacting to Hamlet's madness, we again are left to wonder if Hamlet is acting strangely enough to warrant this reaction. Only when they lay their hands on the sword does the ghost let out a whisper of a swear, accompanied by the trademark heartbeat sound effect. No reaction shot from the three men is edited in, so it might all be in Hamlet's head. If the trio hadn't seen the ghost in scenes one and four, there would be no evidence of the spirit's reality, and we'd have a completely mad Hamlet. We may still. And though a spirit walked the halls of Elsinore, perhaps, their conversation was a fiction. And yet Olivier is perhaps too subtle about Hamlet's madness, if indeed he suffers from it. Time to bring Horatio closer as a confidant. The twin lines about leaving the stage are used here to send the soldiers off first, and Hamlet then has his asides in front of Horatio. He's including him more than the others into his secret, and this despite earlier using your philosophy, which distances him from Hamlet. When Hamlet says, let's go together a second time, it's now for the loitering Horatio. Splitting the group off, though ignoring Shakespeare's stage directions, is well motivated by the text itself. Hamlet is last to leave, taking a look back at the tower where he met the ghost, perhaps nostalgically looking back, at the life he leaves behind. Jacoby's Hamlet put that antique disposition on very early in the play, and one could easily say that this is a mad Hamlet, not a pretending Hamlet. However, Hamlet is self-aware enough to know that he is touched with insanity, or has consciously given in to it in order to rebuild himself for his mission. So he can say he'll act mad, knowing full well he is mad. The sequence starts with Hamlet's Hello Ho Ho Boy, Come Bird Come, played as an actual bird call. Immediately setting the tone for the wild and whirling nature of his discourse through the rest of the scene. As usual for Jacoby, the character is mercurial and can change tone on a dime, making something different of each line. Though mostly manic throughout the scene, he comes close to tears when he invokes his business and desires. His grief comes in waves, as I can confirm such things do, usually upon any reminder of his father's death. The ghost's voice coming from the earth is another such moment. Boy, since thou so, I've not that true, Penny. Come on! You hear this fellow in the cellarage? Consent to swear. 
Though the words are mocking, Hamlet is on the verge of breaking down while uttering them. This Hamlet has adopted a mad speech, but some of his emotions cannot be hidden. Though he seems lost in his own world, Hamlet shows he is nonetheless alert when he overhears Horatio's This is Wondrous Strange from afar. He says, in your philosophy in this version, but there's enough tenderness between the two of them that we don't necessarily feel that Hamlet is ostracizing Horatio. Instead, the old school friend seems to be the only person Hamlet is close to. He makes an effort to include Marcellus in Scholars and Soldiers, so Horatio must already be included. Horatio is so astonished by his friend's turn that he may well feel like a complete outsider. He is indeed a stranger to this, where Hamlet is not. And so there is a divide between the characters, though not one Hamlet consciously creates. There's a certain obliviousness to Hamlet in Jacoby's performance that makes us believe he really has gone crazy. In the act's final moments, Jacoby throws in an unscripted moment to motivate the let's go together repetition. After his rhyming couplet, and as the other men are walking away from him, they stop and look back as if doubting his sanity. Hamlet looks to them, then makes like he sees the ghost again. They look in that direction, and there's nothing, and Hamlet giggles wickedly at them, like a child who's just pranked his friends. Nay here becomes, no, no, I'm just joking. He has shown them what he means by putting an antic disposition on, but has he convinced them that it is a put-on? This Hamlet is so wild that Horatio and Marcellus may be more motivated by fear than by trust. Jump ahead 10 years, Zeffirelli continues to frustrate with important cuts to the lines, which uh, makes it at times difficult to glean some new understanding of the play from this version. As in the Olivier adaptation, there are three men accompanying Hamlet on this journey into the supernatural, and the prince seems ready to tell them what's going on. The bird call seems an earnest invitation to learn the secret. Hamlet quickly changes his mind, fearing they will reveal it, though Gibson doesn't really play the next lines as obfuscation. He's matter-of-fact when he talks about the errant knave, and it's only Horatio's frustration that turns it into a dodge. Hamlet makes sense to himself, but his words don't carry any meaning to his friends who are out of the loop. Regarding the swearing, the ghost's voice comes from above, as per its location in the previous sequence, motivating the cut to any line to the contrary. As day breaks, there's no reason it couldn't have returned to the ground, but in this version, the ghost is woefully unambiguous. There is never any real indication that it might be an evil tempter, or in any way dangerous, Making the voice from above makes it heavenly rather than hellish, and removing Hamlet's subsequent mockeries ensures a son's respect. They run off to swear on more removed ground, leaving the walls of Elsinore and going outside where it is now light. Hamlet is exhilarated by this point. The staging makes this new morning an entry into a new world, although one of light rather than darkness. It does not portentously foretell the tragedy to come. I'd call it ironic? if it wasn't so wet and overcast. As is, the director's intent isn't clear. Horatio drops to his knees in fear, and the giddy Hamlet has cause to chide him about his philosophy. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than I dreamt of in your philosophy. Gibson doesn't let us in on when he decided to act crazy. Which is a shame. There's just not enough insanity in the sequence to warrant his getting the idea from his own behavior. The idea comes out of nowhere. I feel the next cut most strongly. In this version, Hamlet ends the act with the rhyming couplet, but
but does not preface or follow it with an invitation to go in. There's almost a sense that he speaks the couplet to the camera and that we are in a soliloquy type space at that moment. But that's uncertain. I suppose Horatio and the soldiers hear him, though again, they have little context to make sense of it. By not looking to draw his friends back in, and perhaps he doesn't ostracize them enough to warrant such a gesture, which is a problem in and of itself, he makes them unimportant. The cumulative effect of Act 1's cuts is to turn these characters into ciphers. Zeffirelli might as well have cut them entirely from the film for all the importance they seem to have for Hamlet. Perhaps someone should stage a Hamlet where Horatio and Marcellus are ghosts themselves. Cut scene one and it's rather doable. And then you'd have the whole of hell scheming against the Prince of Denmark. Hamlet 2000 moves lines around frequently. And in this case, prefaces this section with its actual end lines. The rhyming couplet is spoken over a video montage of people and the city, presumably one of Hamlet's art films, resolving into the real world of the play, i.e., the Denmark Corporation logo. The ghost is still present, out on a nearby balcony smoking a cigarette. The time is out of joint. Oh, cursed spite. That ever I was born to set it right. It's nowhere near morning, so the line about time being out of joint is used here as a preface to that strangeness. Hamlet's friends walk in and see the ghost there, witnessing not Hamlet's madness, but the ghost itself. Hamlet does not appear mad, nor does he warn his friends that he might start acting strangely, or at least not yet. There is no swearing, possibly as his friends are unlikely to tattle on him, and the ghost does not ask them to. Most of the sequence is thus cut, and Horatio jumps right in to This is Wonder Strange. Hamlet tells him to give him welcome, a notable change from It showing that he's more accepting of the ghost's identity. This is his father and not some evil spirit. The character's tangibility goes in that same direction. Speaking of single words, this Hamlet uses the more inclusive our philosophy, being just as mystified as Horatio is that the supernatural is real. The cumulative effect of this scene is to create a world where the younger characters are loyal to each other without needing to swear oaths. It is an accepted principle that they won't be talking to Hamlet's parents, the adults, who have sold themselves out for money and power. These are two distinct and never overlapping worlds. It will make the betrayal of Guildenstern and Rosencrantz all the more unforgivable. With that couplet gone, Hamlet ends the act on another voiceover line, this one pulled from earlier in the scene and in the previous sequence from the perspective of these episodes. My fate cries out. Instead of referring to the impulse to follow the ghost, it now refers to his call to arms against his uncle. It works as indeed the original use of the line ultimately invokes that same mission, though Hamlet, at that point, does not know it. In Fodor's more experimental version, Hamlet's encounter with the ghost is a sort of waking dream. Horatio, the only one on guard duty with him, startles him out of it. The prince is confused and paranoid, as people sometimes are when they're awakened from an intense dream. The actor even fluffs his lines a little bit. It's important to remember that though Horatio seems to accept the fact that the ghost was communicating with Hamlet here, she didn't see it. So she really doesn't understand why he's so panicked, nor why he suddenly doesn't trust her to keep his secrets. In turn, this lack of understanding from his best friend makes him angry. There's a nasty cut from Faith Heartily to This Is Wonder Strange, making it about his behavior rather than the ghost. Listen. Faith Heartily, 
This is just wondrous strange. Then as a stranger, give it welcome. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. At which Hamlet lashes out. He snaps at her, using your philosophy as an accusation. He's drawn a line in the sand and pushed her to the other side. Making Horatio a woman allows for a certain additional mirroring with Ophelia, which he also pushes away at the start of the next act. What follows is an awkward moment. He visibly regrets what he said, and she's hurt by the comment. There's definitely a certain degree of romantic tension between the two of them, which I won't claim isn't there when the characters are both male. We then move on to the swearing, which he proposes as a sort of apology. He means to draw his friend back into his confidence, but gives his conditions, not just to show how important it is, but because he knows her. This is the first time I've gotten a sense that the description of an ambiguous giving out refers specifically to Horatio, and I guess Marcellus if present. If Hamlet knows these men, and this woman in this version, as well as it seems, wouldn't he use their own tics in that description? Horatio's characterization as a mistress of irony and sarcasm in this film could well come from these lines. Hamlet not only tells her not to cross her arms and shake her head, he catches her doing it. The turns of phrase he forbids her may well be the ones she tends to use. This Horatio is so non-committal, Hamlet must earnestly force her to commit. At the end of the scene, which omits the rhyming couplet, the voice of the ghost tells her to swear. She reacts, and we fade to black on that spooky moment. The ambiguity of the ghost's reality is restored. As for the sequence in Tenant's Hamlet, Gregory Doran's camera work is handheld, giddy, drunk, and mad. The floor seems to tip like the deck of a ship. Hamlet comes towards his friends and walks away from them like the tide itself. This is an incredibly visual way to represent his state of mind. It pulsates with Hamlet's own sanity and with his alternating paranoia and trust in Horatio. That's a good reason to believe Tennant's Hamlet has gone mad, even beyond the way it's staged and shot. His characterization is very different from the grieving boy of the earlier scenes. He's just cut his hand, turned his oath into an even more serious affair, and is he asking the same from his friends? They never shed blood for their oaths, but they might well have thought Hamlet was going to require it of them. Even when he gets the idea of putting an antic disposition on, it doesn't look like he has far to go. A good case could be made that this Hamlet is mad, but smart enough to know it. He justifies his present and future actions by turning uncontrollable behavior into a conscious affectation, PR, in Elsinore. Insane or not, it's not all in his head. The ghost returns, shaking the ground violently, bells ringing. In the stage play, they use sound effects to shake the seats and mechanical effects to disturb chandeliers and lanterns. In the film version, simple use of shaky cam accomplishes the same trick, though it's not quite as visceral for the audience. Either way, it is quite clear that the director means for us to believe in the ghost's reality. This is not anyone's point of view but our own. The two men accompanying Hamlet believe in it and, terrified, scream out their oath. Hamlet, for his part, is high on the energy of the moment. He would hope Horatio could see things like he does and uses the more inclusive our philosophy. But the sequence otherwise does little to bring Hamlet and Horatio closer together. They have contrasting attitudes and Hamlet's is an alienating one. And once they've sworn, the men run out as Hamlet stays behind to say his final couplets to camera. The very last line is omitted, but it would certainly have cemented Hamlet's madness for the audience. A note on there are more things on this earth, from the director in the audio commentary. He rightly reminds us that this line also stands as an invitation to the audience to accept the weirdness of the play. There are politics, and there is family drama, but there is also the supernatural, 
And the more we dig into the play, problems and ambiguities as well. Shakespeare tells us through this line to trust him and go along with him on the journey. And I accepted a long time ago. In the original Classics Illustrated, this whole sequence is just one panel in which Hamlet asks them not to talk about this night, and they swear. It's actually surprising that the return of the ghost isn't included given this adaptation's fascination with that supernatural element. There's no conflict between the men that requires ghostly intervention, although the narration is almost oxymoronic. After the ghost is gone, Horatio and Marcellus ask to be informed as to what the ghost has said. Instead, Hamlet swears them to secrecy. So, I won't tell you anything, but I'll swear you to secrecy. And that's the interesting bit, I suppose. Summed up that way, it seems a little absurd, but we do have a scene here in which characters are forced to swear to reveal nothing, while also being told nothing. While that's not strictly true, it's not entirely false either. In the Berkeley version, the sequence gets the better part of a page with Hamlet immediately asking his companions to swear. There's no room here for madcap zaniness, and Hamlet seems to remain his same old dour self through the entire first act. We do not see him change, though he does tell Horatio that he'll affect a badness. In other words, this Hamlet isn't mad, or even distraught. His actions will be well-planned, presumably. The ghost appears one last time instead of under the earth. He's above ground. The relevant lines are, of course, cut. Strangely, though Hamlet proposes the oath, we do not hear the men swear to it. There is a disjointed quality to the comic book form, with things, especially speech, occurring in a single sustained moment within the same panel, and then actions and words possibly lost in the space between panels. Sequences can read as a montage in which things must be inferred. Certainly, movement must be inferred in the comic. As readers of Hamlet, we know the men swear, even if that's not depicted here. This is an artifact of the medium and the difficulties of adaptation, rather than a conscious disjointedness. At the end, Hamlet and friends go back to Elsinore, and as usual, artist Tom Mandrake gives us moody images, though I'm not always sure if they thematically match their scenes. Like this panel gives the impression of three heroes going boldly into the night. And as we know, Hamlet really goes it alone from this point. We have the darkness and uncertainty, but where is Hamlet's isolation and doubt? Again, something may be lost in the frozen moment. And finally, in the rock opera, you know you love it, uh, at around this point in Halliday's double album, the timeline gets a little tenuous. Songs are, by their nature, not as linearly narrative as drama is, and are closer cousins to the soliloquy, interior voices, heightened reality. So in Halliday's Hamlet, where does the first act end and the second begin? I believe the shift from one to the other is represented by the next two songs. Je suis fou, I am mad. And On a peur pour lui, we're afraid for him. The first is Hamlet's self-acknowledged switch from sanity to madness, and the other, the reaction his friends have to his change in behavior. Je suis fou Comme une tomate Je ne tiens pas sur mes pattes Je marche Et fait de travers Je vois rouge et je suis vert Pardonne-moi Fou du roi Si je suis plus fou que toi This lament 
pretty definitely tells us that Halliday considers Hamlet's madness to be real. This is Hamlet's voice, and he doesn't leave any room for ambiguity. He expresses sadness at what he has become, and in the closing parts of the song, starts laughing maniacally as the chorus throws high-pitched, he is mad at him, and he repeats key lines from the song. Many of the similes used will seem strange in English, uh, but that's because they were chosen for their rhyme schemes in French. There's a line that goes, I am mad like a tomato. On the other hand, those nonsense words invoke Hamlet's madness. The mention of madness in a bottle may in fact be more about Halliday's own experiences with the rock star lifestyle than Hamlet's, given his railing against the king's rouse. I am mad like a son, whether through the bottle, whether through Ophelia, I sleep with madness. So we can also note the foreshadowing of Ophelia's madness and Hamlet's relationship with poor Yorick. The line is, forgive me, King's gesture, if I'm madder than you. The latter creates an early link between Hamlet's madness and the King's gesture, who, in part, helped raise him. We'll have more cause to talk about Yorick as another father figure in Hamlet's life down the road. So this was Hamlet's interior monologue. Now comes the reaction. This track, about a minute, is just eerie driving music. If the rock opera were actually to be staged, we could well imagine some sort of action occurring here. It's noteworthy that while Hamlet's descent into madness is a relatively straightforward lament, Horatio's perception of the same event is creepy and strange. After that minute, the chorus shows up with an altogether too happy sing-along with a couple of undecipherable lines. I've been looking at various sources, but they either don't give lyrics for this track or else don't make any grammatical sense. The mix of concern and fear inspired by Hamlet's behavior takes us into the second act, from Horatio and Marcellus to the whole of the court. And that ends our look at Act 1, Scene 5, Part 2, and in our next episode, we'll do a wrap-up of the entire act and read some of your comments from the last few episodes. I'll have a guest with me, dear reader's own Stella, and we'll talk about Act 1, her experience with Hamlet and her favorite adaptations, and we'll feature one adaptation not yet covered on the show, The Lion King. And that'll be in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, if you have thoughts on this particular episode, please head over to fireandwaterpodcast.com and put keyboard to digital paper. And if you like this content, think about visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. Thanks for listening, and I hope you, dear listener, will return for our Act 1 wrap-up. You missed it. You silence.